Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability we all have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. I'm your host, Jihi Jolly. Before we jump in today, a quick reminder that during the month of July, we're on a break and playing reruns of our most popular episodes from the archives. We'll be back with brand new episodes the first Wednesday in August. Today, we're covering a topic that so many people have emailed or DM'd us about, which is self-care, and on a much deeper level, self-worth. Our guest is Jessica Riley, a mental health specialist in Florida who most recently was a military psychologist. She's sharing her personal story today of deeply struggling with boundaries, an overwhelming workload, and an inability to take care of herself, plus how she used Buddhism to completely change the situation. Let's hear Jessica's story. So can we just start with you telling me a little bit about sort of where are you from? And and since we are going to talk about work, like what was your dream for the future when you were a kid? When I was a kid, I loved to dream about what I was going to be. I'm a Navy brat. So my parents met and married in the in the Navy. My mom stayed for a little bit. My dad did a whole career. So he retired after 20 years. So we moved um, not as much as like some military brats do. I lived in Pennsylvania and then California, Pennsylvania. And then we moved to New Orleans and that's when my dad retired. So kind of stayed in New Orleans for most of my adolescence. And um, I loved dreaming about what I was going to be. The predominant theme was always like, I wanted to make a difference in the world. Um, And I had this whisper that I wanted to be a psychologist, but like I was halfway through my degree. And when I graduated, that whisper just kept like, like, you know, like nagging at me. And uh, I finally took the plunge and, took a couple prerequisites in psychology and then applied to grad school thinking I would never get in. And then I got in and I was like, Oh, Oh no, I got to put my money where my mouth is now. Oh, wow. So, and then um, what did you sort of, I know we'll come back to this later, but what did you end up doing work-wise? So after, you know, grad school is, super expensive as most people know and um I was like how am I gonna pay for this and my now husband my boyfriend at the time was in the navy and I had met a couple of his friends who were navy physicians and they told me about a scholarship program that the navy offers Mm -hmm. and so I was like oh I wonder if they do that for for psychologists and I looked into it and they did they offer like they offer like 200 scholarships for physicians a year and they offer five for psychologists. So it was Whoa. very competitive, but I sort of, that just oriented me to do military psychology. It was familiar to me because I had grown up that way. Um, and so I just started like all throughout grad school focusing on like being a military psychologist. And even though I didn't get the scholarship, they offered an internship and you could join the Navy right out of school and they paid very well. And it was like, you're going to learn tons of leadership and just like so many opportunities to do like really wild things as a psychologist, like things that um, you just might not imagine that you could do. And it just all sounded so cool to me. And, and then that's what I did. Wow, I have so many more questions about that, which we'll we'll come back to. But um, just to orient ourselves, somewhere along the way, you got married and became a mom. Can you just tell me a little bit? Um, yeah, just um, what are you doing now? How many how many kids do you have? Just a little picture of your current life. Um, so I did my four years in the Navy. I thought I would do twenty. You know, I was gung ho to be like career Navy psychologist, and you know, life life takes you on different paths all the time. So I finished my four years. And so I have been out of the Navy for about four months now. And I haven't been doing anything. (laughs) (laughs) I have been like learning how to be a mom and 
like taking care of my health and all of these like aspects of my life that were neglected because my job was so demanding. Mm. Um, I have a three-year-old son. I'm trying to have another baby. So I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to sort of reset and regroup and like going into this next phase. We talked about this a little bit, but I, I have like, I had a very, very extreme habit of like work was all consuming and Mm -hmm. sleep and health and relationships and just like every other aspect of your life would just fall to the wayside while I was achieving some sort of goal. And so now I'm really trying to um, set like a sustainable life for myself, like where I can do something I'm really passionate about at work, but still like be involved with my children, you know, see my husband, have relationships with my friends and take Mm -hmm. care of my health, sleep right, eat right. So it's like learning this whole process all over again. Yeah, yeah, so important. And I definitely um, can relate to that. But let's so I, that's a perfect segue to to talking about how you ended up at this point, which I know was a long journey and Buddhism played a role in it, right? So um, why don't we why don't we just start with um, sort of like when and why you started practicing Buddhism and maybe what you were going through at the time that you decided to start chanting? Yes. Okay, such a good question. So my dear friend from high school was born into this practice and she, you know, I knew about it in high school. I'd go to her house and I'd hear her family chanting. And then as she became more serious in her practice, she started sharing with me in college. And I like went to meetings and, you know, I learned about it, but I never sincerely like committed to it. But she kept sharing Buddhism with me for it was a decade, like at least a decade. Um, And when I was in grad school, you know, I was in grad school for six years and, you know, I was suffering, but I couldn't see how much I was suffering because I just thought that that's how it had to be. And she, you know, kept telling me how like people had used Buddhism to get through grad school. And I was getting through grad school, like I was doing very well in grad school, but it was coming at a very high cost, right? Mm -hmm. I had just sort of depleted like my health and my soul. So I decided to take a year off. Like the more she kind of shared Buddhism with me, I was like, no, I just need to go back to my roots. Like I had studied yoga very, um, very in depth. And I was like, I'm not doing yoga. I'm not living that lifestyle. I need to just go back to that. So I took a year off and I actually traveled to India and studied yoga um, for two months. And I came back, like I felt like at peace again. You know, I was happy. I was laughing. I was eating healthy. I was exercising. Like I felt whole and healthy again. Um, But, you know, that year, all I was doing was writing my dissertation, which was a lot of work, but it was maybe four to six hour days, maybe an eight hour day versus 10 to 12 hour days, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was like, good. Then I start my full-time internship. It's the last year of my my program. And that's when I joined the Navy. Mm -hmm. And so I did my internship at a Navy hospital. um, And like, like first day I'm doing my internship and my my workload was so overwhelming. I was right back to 10, 12 hour days again. I never saw the sun. I was at work before the sun rose. I came home after the sun set. I never saw my husband. I never talked to my friends. I never did anything fun. Like it was literally work, sleep, repeat. Mm -hmm. And I was like, are you kidding me? I was like, I thought I just broke through this. Like, it's kind of like that light at the end of the tunnel thing. Like, let me just sacrifice now and it'll be better later. Mm. But it it just kept repeating, right? Mm. And so I was so discouraged. I, I thought that like the sacrifice was in grad school. And then when I started working, it would be better. But I had started working and it was not better. <laughs> it was the same. And so I remember she and I had a conversation and 
um, you know, she's just checking in on me and she was like, well, how's your practice? And I was like, you know, <laughs> and I was like, will you connect me to the SGI again? And this was probably the third city we'd done that in. Huh. And again, I kind of went through the same steps. I went to meetings and I talked to people, but this time she was like, do you want to receive your gohonzon? And, you know, the gohonzon is sort of like a ceremony where you become a member, like you commit to taking this seriously. And so I was like, okay, like it wasn't romantic or anything, but I was just like desperate. I had tried all these other things and I still wasn't living a healthy life. Like I literally had a doctorate degree in mental health and I was not healthy. <laughs> like, mm. So I was desperate. And so I just tried it and I tried it very sincerely. And that's when things really started to transform. Wow. What a journey. It sounds like you're saying you had been around and exposed to Buddhism for ages, basically. And mm -hmm. you already sort of um, had a pretty solid understanding of mental health and even spirituality, if you know, you, you studied yoga in depth. Um, but it, the effects of those things kind of were not sustainable. So do you remember like around this time, when you first chanted? And like, how like, was there a day where you were like, Oh, this the actual part, the chanting part of the practice, like does something or it feels good or anything like that? So that is so interesting because I'm such an intellectual and it's, you know, obviously a benefit and a curse because chanting, which many people, that's their segue. They start chanting and they like feel something like they feel peace or they feel clarity. But chanting was actually the hardest part for me to implement. Huh. Like, I could read all the books, right? Because I'm an intellectual, I like to read books and I could understand the philosophy, but putting it in my heart was actually the hardest part. And so it took some time um, to really, like I had to discipline myself to say like, this is the teaching. The teaching is to chant every morning and every night. Because even now my struggle is I wanna think, I wanna think my way through every problem in life, mm -hmm. right? And so that, that's the discipline was like chant first before you think your way through it. <laughs> and sort of over time, I think, um, you know, I had like small benefits here and there, but I would say if we fast forward like two years, that's when I really started to realize like, oh, chanting is where I get my clarity. Chanting is where I get my wisdom if that makes any sense. So mm. there's not this moment. It was very, um, I had to discipline myself to get that from chanting because I had to overcome my mind, if that mm. makes sense. Like I had to overcome my intelligence and my arrogance mm -hmm. to trust like the wisdom of the heart, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it totally, totally makes sense. And I, I, I'm similar. I mean, I grew up in the practice, but I I'm like that person who's like, I'll read all the books. If there's 10 books, I'll read all 10 books. And then maybe yeah. I'll chant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I did. Yeah. So it was definitely like a, a discipline for me as well. But now mm -hmm. I, I like, I can't imagine. I'm so grateful that I, I invested in chanting. <laughs> That's a weird way to put it. But yeah, you, you do feel it over time. That's also one of the beautiful things. It may, might not be like every single day you feel amazing. But when you look back, you know, you're like, yeah. I'm reacting differently. Why am I reacting this way? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, even just like, I mean, so, you know, people who are listening don't know this, but like right before we pressed record, I had a little like argument with my family and I could tell that my life condition was in a negative place. Mm. And I've learned I need to chant. I need to chant to transform that negativity in myself. And so now... I can recognize it. I can recognize, oh, you're thinking too much, Jessica. You need to chant for some wisdom. Mm. But it, you know, it, was a, it was a discipline. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's like that, um, like in Buddhism, we say to use the strategy of the Lotus Sutra, yes. which is chanting and not the strategy yes. of the mind. Because our minds yes. are so wonderful, but also very unreliable and inconsistent. Yes. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, that was a huge thing for me to learn to, you know, use the strategy of the Lotus Sutra, not yeah. Jessica Riley's strategy. 
Because um, I had tried that and it was working, but not so great. <laughs> yeah, I totally hear you. Um, so, so if I may ask then, um, so it sounds like it's after grad school when you kind of return to this very intense workload um, and mm-hmm. lifestyle that you're like, okay, I'm going to actually practice Buddhism consistently. Mm-hmm. But um, just for people who might not have like any picture of what that day-to-day looked like for you, um, what do you mean by 10 to 12 hour days? Like, what did you have to do? What was hard about it? And then like, where did you start sort of um, seeing the impacts of chanting in small ways during that period, if that makes sense? Mm. So, um, I worked at an outpatient mental health clinic at a really massive, like, um, hospital. And, you know, as an intern, I'm just like the little peon, like at the bottom of the totem pole. And so there's so much work that has to get done and nobody can possibly get all this work done. So it was like, Oh, who do, who do we, who do we put that work on? Oh, give it to the intern. Like, I can't tell you how many complex. So as a psychologist, mostly what I do is I, um, I interview people to help figure out what's the diet, the mental health diagnosis that they have. And then I come up with a treatment plan and then I usually treat them. But another big part of what I did, especially as a military psychologist was also figuring out whether with that diagnosis, they are suitable and fit to serve in the United States military. Mm. Because certain mental health conditions, not um, not many, but some would really make their job in the military unsafe, like make them unsafe Mm. and make other people unsafe. And so when you're doing something like that, when you're holding somebody's career in your hands, you really, really wanna take it seriously and do it really in depth. You're having to read books, you're having to present on topics. Um, and then the the military piece, which is like learn military culture, learn what it means to be a military psychologist, learn how and when, learn which and what mental health conditions are not suitable for the military mm. and for the person. And that was a very complex piece to learn. So it was just a it was just a lot of all of that. Yeah, I see. Oh, my gosh. Very, very intense. So you're like supporting people while assessing them and deciding their whole future. <laughs> I would not be able to do that. <laughs> very intense. So so then how are you like personally feeling, you know, before you started and when you were like, OK, I really need to do something because this isn't tenable. How are you mm-hmm. feeling personally, like going into work in, in that kind of situation? And then what started to change? So, so that really, really intense um, period was actually the catalyst that caused me to, to really take this practice seriously. But I sort of did um, four months in that environment and then four months in another environment and four months in another environment. That, that was my first year in the Navy. So by the time I had really decided to commit myself to this practice, I had gotten through the worst of it. So then my life became a little bit more manageable. Like my days weren't quite as long. I was able to take care of myself, be with people a little bit better. Um, but it really wasn't until... So I would say that I was laying the foundation. You know, I was um, learning to practice the basic pillars of Buddhism, right? Faith, practice, and study. And so those first couple years, I was just doing what they told me to do, right? Like a good military person. Like, what did you (laughs) tell me to do? And I'm going to do it. But then what happened, so I um, actually just months after I became a member, I got pregnant, which was wonderful. My husband and I had delayed having a family for, you know, many years because I didn't want to have kids while I was in school. So we got pregnant. So that was great. And, um, and I checked in to my next duty station. I moved from DC to Pensacola Mm -hmm. and I had a baby three months after I got there. And, um, it was way harder than I ever imagined it to be. So at the time, my husband was in the military as well. He was in the reserves. 
and he flew for an airline. So he would be gone for, you know, like he would be home like one or two days a week. So I didn't see him very much. And so here we had set up our lives to where our careers were so much the focus of our lives, right? He loved flying, so he would fly, and that meant that he would be gone most most of the time. And I had this really demanding job, and you know, but we were happy with it. But then this child enters the world, and our priorities and our values just completely shift. So I was sort of already struggling with how am I going to take care of this child with my demanding job. Mm. Um, And then my husband actually got hired for a new job. And so he was completely gone for two months. So I literally was by myself raising this child who's was two months old. Um, And then at three months old, I had to go back to work. So three months. So I have a three month old child literally dependent upon me. My husband is gone and I have to go back to work. And the reality of that was just insane. I was like, this is unreasonable. Like, this is absolutely unreasonable to expect this much from a person. You know, I didn't sleep. My son woke up every two hours. So I was completely sleep deprived, like a crazy person. So I started having like severe panic attacks every day, thinking about going to work um, and how I was going to juggle all of these things. And, um, And then, you know, I go back to work and 10 days after I go back to work, my husband calls me and he says, "Um, I've been involuntarily ordered to deploy to Afghanistan for a year. And I was like, are you kidding? And he was like, I'm not kidding. And so um, it was it was it was like it was insane because I was like, I'm already struggling this much. And you're going to send my husband to a war zone for a year? Like, I was like, how am I going to do this? And um, I sort of immediately hit the ground in my office, like, just like in despair. Like, it's just not possible. Like, how am I going to do this? And like, the depths of that despair was so great that I knew, like, I had to lift myself up or else I might never get up, right? So I was like, you have to get up, Jessica. And actually... I got up and the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, one of the core Buddhist principles like that we, we learn, which is, um, unshakable happiness and turn poison into medicine. And so actually I keep this post-it. I wrote this, like after that moment, Uh I wrote this on a post-it and I stuck it on my computer. And in that moment I determined, I was like, I'm going to be happy. Like, I'm not going to live a miserable life anymore. Because this was just like a diagnosis of more misery, more suffering, more sacrifice. I was like, I've already sacrificed so much. Like, what more do you want from me? You know? Mm. And I was like, I have to transform this. And so that really set about like a transformation of me setting boundaries at work. Right? Um, And having a small child, like... um, I really had a hard time saying no at work because I was so afraid. Like I needed to be valued at work. I needed to have, I needed to be good at what I, like I desperately needed to be like good at what I was doing. And so I was afraid if I said no, that meant that I wouldn't be valued at work. But when I had nobody at home to take care of my child, like Four o'clock came and I was like, I'm gone. Like, bye, I'm leaving because I had to go home. Like another life depended upon me. And so I was barely keeping up with like the basics at work. And they would come to me all the time asking me like, can you take on this extra project? Can you take on this extra project? Can you take on this extra project? Um, But I couldn't, like I, I was barely keeping it together trying to take care of this kid. And so in that way, my son was such a huge benefit to me because I couldn't say no for myself, but I could say no for him. And so I learned to say no and I got comfortable with the word no. And to the point that like over time, it didn't scare me so much to say no. Like it, it, it gets so deep. So I feel like I could talk forever, but, um, 
But no. essentially, like, the military, because it was such a pressure cooker, it was so intense. It was, like, so ridiculously intense and demanding that it forced me to get comfortable saying no. Because it was either my life, my quality of life, my 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 son's precious childhood, which I'm not going to get back. I was either going to give that up or I was going to learn to say no. So... Mm-hmm. That was probably the answer to your question and then a whole lot more. But no, no, no. That yeah. was, I mean, that sounds so intense. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, just to follow up to that, I'm thinking, you know, for people who are new, um, you mentioned these two kind of Buddhist concepts pop into your head at the time that you're just on the floor. Can you explain mm-hmm. a little bit like what are what are those concepts or what sort of um, yeah. did you decide to do based on your practice at that time? So unshakable happiness. So in Buddhism, there's two types of happiness. There's relative happiness and there's absolute happiness. And relative happiness is the kind of happiness that is dependent upon your circumstances, Mm -hmm. right? So in my case, if I felt good at what I did in my job, I was happy. If I achieved a degree, I was happy. If I, you know, like all of these sort of outside me sorts of things. But Buddhism teaches that really the kind of happiness that you want is absolute happiness or unshakable happiness, meaning like it's a kind of happiness that you, it can't be, it can't be, it's indestructible. Like it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter what your obstacle is. The happiness is inside you regardless of the circumstance. And I was like, I want that, right? So that's (laughs) why I wrote, I wrote that, you know? Um, cause I think I had been chasing the happiness that's dependent on your circumstances. Mm. And then the other thing that I wrote is, you know, turn poison into medicine and, um, Buddhism teaches us that, you know, whatever poison it is, we feel like we have in our life. So that's whatever, whatever you're suffering with, mm. you can absolutely transform that suffering into medicine, right? And medicine that's not just healing for you, but it's healing for other people. Hmm. So, and honestly, I might not have really known what those two things meant, but I knew that they existed and, and that's what popped into my head. And I think then over the course of that struggle, I really deeply learned what those two concepts meant. Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful. And so you like, I'm just imagining how on earth did you have the time to chant? in between all of those other things like what role did that honestly speaking play at the time that's a very good question (laughs) so um when I was on maternity leave I didn't chant like I let myself make an excuse right I was like I was like I have this tiny tiny child I'm deprived, I'm sleep deprived. And I, my birth was very physically, um, like I suffered an injury and I wasn't really able to walk for the first eight weeks after I delivered. So like mm-hmm. my body was healing. I was sleep deprived. Like it was so much. So I justified that. And I was like, I'll chant when I can, but I'm not going to force myself to chant every morning and every night. I was like, I got a lot of stuff going on. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but once, you know, I went back to work and my husband was given these orders to deploy a friend from the community, you know, someone who had been practicing Buddhism for a while. She asked me, she said, how consistent is your practice? And I was like, eh, you know, like it's not. And she, you know, this stuck with me and it sticks with me today. And she said, your life condition is down here and your problems are up here. She was like, that's why it feels impossible that you, you can't solve it. She was like, you have to chant every day consistently so that your life condition is up here. And when your life condition is up here, you can see how to solve this problem. She's like, but you have to get your life condition up, right? And like, I just was so like desperate, you know, to change my situation that I was like, yes, okay, okay. <laughs> and, and yeah, it was so difficult, like, I woke up at like five o'clock in the morning to 
get myself ready, to get my baby ready, to take him to daycare, to go to work. And then I would work from about 7, 30, 8 o'clock till 4. And then I would pick him up. I would come home. I would feed him um, to go to bed, you know, like maybe 9 o'clock to have a sleepless night, you know, because I'm feeding a baby, you know, throughout. And like everything depended on me because my husband was gone. Mm -hmm. But I had to chant, like, even if it wasn't long every morning, every night, I had to chant. And it was such a struggle at first, but I just determined that I would do it. Even if it was only three nam myoho denge kyos in the mm. morning and three nam myoho denge kyos at night. Um, and like over time, I got the wisdom to figure out how to do this. And so I was able to get five, 10, 15 minutes in in the morning. And there were so many times where I was just so exhausted, but like, the threat of my husband deploying was a big enough catalyst to make me do it no matter what, because I wanted that obstacle to go away. So I just, mm. I was just determined. I was yeah. just determined. Wow, that's so encouraging. What I'm hearing from you is you have this like pattern going on in your life of just having this insanely full plate. And mm -hmm. then you sort of... Um, it reaches its climax when you have a baby and then your husband's about to be deployed and you're like, okay, I do have to chant. So what started shifting in your heart or sort of, um, yeah, like what changed after, after that? I remember on the phone you were sharing, like you also realized some things about yourself, right? You know, my friend that had shared Buddhism with me, I remember talking to her about the possibility that my husband was going to deploy. And she just kept saying, chant for what you want chant for what you want. Hmm. But in my heart, what I wanted was him not to go. You know, my husband had been in the military for over a decade, like a decade and a half. He'd already deployed four times. And so the thought of him missing the first year of his son's life, I was just like, we've already, you know, like we've already done this. But as a service member, you feel guilty because if you don't deploy, somebody else is going to deploy in your pay, your place. So I felt so much guilt chanting that he didn't deploy mm -hmm. because I felt then that we were just passing the buck on to somebody else. So that really started to transform how I was praying because mm -hmm. my friend told me, she said, this is not a selfish practice, Jessica. Mm -hmm. She was like, you have to chant that him not deploying is a benefit for everyone, right? And so I started to chant like that. And that helped me resolve so much guilt, right? About wanting what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So I chanted that, you know, he wouldn't go. I chanted that somebody who wanted to go would volunteer to go in his place. And I chanted, cause he was going with the Navy SEALs and I chanted that the Navy SEAL, the whole team would be protected, right? Mm -hmm. And so flash forward, you know, three months of intense chanting, lots of self-doubt, lots of just like human revolution, like changing on the inside. Mm -hmm. And we got a call. He was not going. And we were like, what? What? Oh How? Gosh. Why? You know? <laughs> and, but we were just like, okay. They gave us no information. They're just like, you're not going. And then over time after that happened, he actually met the guy who volunteered to go in his place at this conference. And that guy told him, he was like, yeah, but they actually canceled the whole thing. And so then my other prayer that they would all be protected also came true because nobody went. And so that was just like an awakening to how powerful my prayer was. Hmm. But, you know, so that wasn't the end of this battle sort of for my quality of life. Mm -hmm. And then as I progressed through this battle of quality, like of a fight for my right to have a quality life, right? Mm -hmm. Then it became clear that it was really a fight to believe in my self-worth. So then I was sort of able to finally put this boundary around my job. And, and I like really was able to put that boundary, you know, by chanting, like, and I would get up in the morning and I would have this ridiculous amount of things that I needed to accomplish. I was one provider for just this vast amount of people. There was like on paper, there was no way I could give quality care mm. to all of these people that I alone was responsible for caring for. 
and, but that pushed me that every morning I would get up and I would say, I'm going to get all of this done or I'm going to get what needs to get done and I'm going to do it well and I'm leaving at four o'clock. Like just after chanting that way and battling this, like I was in the Navy for four years, literally every day felt like a battle for my life. And at first it would be like these nemesis, like these people in my environment, you know, that felt like the problem, Mm. you know, I thought it was my professors in grad school, um, my bosses at work, you know, the Navy, which people embody as like this person, right? I definitely did that. But it, it eventually just became clear that that the real person that was pushing me to work so hard was me. And that was because I didn't believe that I had value, you know, mm-hmm. that this constant push to prove myself was because I didn't believe that I had value. And yeah. Wow, that's a huge realization. I mean, I think so many people can probably relate to that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and and then it started to shift that like, you know, cause we say, you know, Buddhism is about about creating value for all. And I think when I, when it finally sort of clicked that like that, I didn't believe in my value. I didn't believe in my worth. Like I know other people feel that way. And so Mm -hmm. then it became like, I have to overcome this so that I can help other people overcome this too. Because if you look around our society, it's, it's everywhere. Like, and especially now, like I see it everywhere, like, especially women, like I see women who are raising families, working full time, just trying to do it all. Because we've sort of been conditioned to think that, like, that's what we have to do. Mm. But also, you know, many people, I'm sure just don't believe that they have value. So Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, th- this is such a sort of um, fresh take hearing you say all of this on what wisdom actually means in Buddhism, because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely someone who loves hard work, but I totally relate to that feeling. I mean, there are times where I've just pushed myself to, to very, very close to the edge, and I'm like then blaming everyone around me or my workload. <laughs> When I chose it for some reason, I chose to live this way. And I think, I, yeah, it's um, just the wisdom to see yourself clearly is something that I've heard a lot of people say they gain from chanting. And it sounds like mm-hmm. that's kind of what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And the fascinating thing was, so I didn't say this, but um, when I was initially chanting that my husband wouldn't deploy, lots of doubt crept in. You know, I just didn't really believe in the power of my prayer to make that happen. So I was like, okay, well, when that doesn't happen, what am I going to do? Right. Like, and, and so then I really started thinking like, I need to quit the Navy. Right. And so when I was doubting the power of my prayer to stop that deployment, then I started like negotiating, like settling for plan B and C. And I was like, I'm just going to quit the Navy. But I was so conflicted. I didn't want to quit the Navy. Like I joined the Navy for a reason and I wanted to finish what I started, mm-hmm. you know, and like another like concept or like sort of key term that you'll hear in Buddhism is when, where you are. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I had been reminded of that so many times. So Every day I wanted to quit the Navy, but every day I redetermined that I had to win where I was. I couldn't, I couldn't, that's when it became very clear that this was karma, right? This insane workload was karma, right? And if I didn't overcome it in the Navy, mm-hmm. then it was going to follow me into my next work environment. And I was like, absolutely not. Like, this is not following me anymore. I'm transforming this now, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and actually, in that way, the Navy was the greatest gift to me because that actually gave me the space to have the courage to say, no, I'm not doing that. And just, like, to just boldly, like, exert, like, 
what I wanted. And, and now like, I'm really determined that I'm not exactly sure how my career is going to unfold going forward, but like, I really do feel like it's my mission to help other people put those boundaries in place and, mm-hmm. and see that they're worthy just as they are. And in fact, when you have the courage to say, no, I'm going to sleep eight hours a night. No, I'm going to eat three healthy meals a day. No, I'm going to exercise routinely. No, I'm going to make space for hobbies and laughing and being with my family and my friends and engaging in my creative endeavors. Like, no, I like that is going to happen and work's going to fit around it. Right. Right. This was such a completely different like vision of my life than before. Before it was work Mm. was everything. And now we're shifting to this model of like, I have to make sure I do these things and work has to go around it. And, but by doing that, like, it's so much more sustainable, like, especially as a therapist where I work with people's emotions, Mm -hmm. like if I, if I sacrifice myself, then I'm going to just get burnt out and I'm going to be of no service to anybody. But, but like having the courage to say like, I have to do these things to keep my health and sustainably help other people. I just think that that's something that many people in whatever their work environments are, like are struggling with. Absolutely. Yeah, especially, I mean, 2020 for just people who work in mental health as well became intense in a way perhaps that it hadn't been before I've been hearing and reading about that a lot so yeah I think there are universal lessons here for sure thank you for sharing all of this so um so after all of these well actually let me just ask so now you're not with the navy anymore so what happened what happened that you're now not working um and and was that also sort of part of this story like you you establish these boundaries you realize that you're your life and taking care of yourself is more important than just getting value from a job. Um, but like what happened next? So now you said it's been four months since you left and you know, what, what are you doing now or what's your next dream? Yeah. So that like exiting the Navy was also another test of like, did you, did you really learn to respect your worth? Do you really learn to value yourself outside of what you do occupationally, mm-hmm. you know? Um, because at first I was like really, really trying to get myself to roll right into another job, like day one after the Navy. And that was, a, I, that was something I also had to chant for was like, it's okay to take a break, Jessica. Actually, it might be really important that you take a break and you learn to value yourself as a mother you know, Mm -hmm. to value yourself as a friend, as a daughter, as a sister. So actually, when I left the Navy, um, you know, I was so much more involved in my son's care than I had been because he he had to go to daycare, right? Because we had two like full-time working parents. And that was such a challenge, you know, because he's a toddler. He's going to test my boundaries. But when he initially started testing my boundaries, I felt so incapable. Like I felt so incapable as a mother. Mm. And I was like, I just want to go back to work. I want to go. <laughs> I just want to go back to this place where I feel capable and and valued, like valued. It's funny that that's the word that comes out. Capable and like I have a purpose, right? Mm. But I knew that was just more of the same. It's like, So I really had to force myself to like, no, Jessica, you have to confront this now because you're just running to work to escape Hmm. problems, which is, which is sort of what I had always done. Like I was good at working. I was good at school. So if I had a problem in my life, I didn't want to deal with, I just went to work, you know, Mm because I was good at that. So I really, it was, it's still a work in progress to say, you know, go to work because it's something you want to offer, not because you're escaping something else. Mm -hmm. And really forcing myself to sit in this somewhat uncomfortable position 
being a stay-at-home mom now, which is not something I really ever like imagined that I would do, but it's so important actually right now that I do that because I still, I, I'm still transforming my relationship with work because I'm still forcing myself to value all these other roles that I fill in life. Yeah, it's actually very moving to, to hear you say that. It, it's totally clear. It makes me wonder though, so this is going to be the other question I had, um, for people who feel this way, like, okay, so work is where I excel. School is where I excel. Um, keep me busy and I'm happy, right? There are many people mm-hmm. in the world that operate that way. Mm-hmm. And and yeah. then when the thing that makes you feel good starts to get hard or too much pressure, you lose it, basically, which sounds like what, yeah. this, what this journey was, was about. So um, I just wonder, you know, this question of believing in yourself, are you realizing that you didn't? Have you thought about sort of... Um, where it comes from or what the alternative looks like or like when you chant about it. Um, you know, we, we talk so much about believing in yourself, but for some people it can seem like this very abstract thing, like, okay, I should believe in myself. So what have you kind of learned from, from that experience and what do you mean by like valuing yourself in these other roles or really believing in yourself? So the only way I can explain it is to get a little tech, like, to get a little technically Buddhist and that's fine. But it's essentially right. So there's bootability, right? Which is your vast potential, right? Your your infinite wisdom, courage, and compassion, right? That's mm-hmm. bootability. It's your highest self, right? So and it's not quite this concrete, but on the flip side of that, right, would be your fundamental darkness, right? Mm-hmm. And me not valuing myself, me not believing in myself, that is my fundamental darkness. It's the greatest illusion that a person can have is to not believe that we're capable of creating the life that we want for the benefit of ourselves and other people, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think for me, especially as a therapist, it's like I had always had this burning desire to make the world a better place. But what I thought that that meant was that, and this wasn't a conscious thought, but so many people in helping professions think that to help other people, they have to sacrifice themselves. Mm-hmm. It's this martyrdom sort of thing, right? But according to Buddhism, that's your, that's an illusion, right? We do not have to make the world a better place at the expense of ourself. We can do both at the same time. We can help other people have the greatest happiness and experience well-being and joy Mm -hmm. while also having that ourselves. Like it's actually incredibly important that the two happen simultaneously but I was in this field that sort of operates from the notion that and it's never said out loud it's not said out loud but it's something that helpers sort of have on the inside is that I have to sacrifice myself to help other people Mm. and so I think that what it means to believe in yourself is to believe in the and. I want this and I can also do this. Mm-hmm. Because anything else is is putting a limitation on your life and your life is limitless. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. It's so funny that you say this because just this weekend um, at, a, at a Buddhist um, meeting, I had a conversation with someone who used the analogy of this pie and they were struggling with something very similar to what you're saying. They were like, I feel like my life is like I have this pie and I'm constantly playing this game of like, if I give you four slices, then I have four less slices. Uh And uh we're all just discussing the Buddhist perspective on that and concluded that like, there is no pie in Buddhism. It's limitless. (laughs) Yes, there's no pie. Which, I mean, you don't, like, people aren't socialized to think that way. But, yeah, I think that's where chanting comes in. Like, your your pie or your your just, your ability, your ability can infinitely expand. And you can, like, most yes. wisely spend your time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. 
Yes, because the end of the story, like, I still accomplished phenomenal things in the Navy. Mm. But I refuse to sacrifice. So, yes, it's it's an and. Like, and that's why it's so hard to believe in your boot ability is because you can create things that are unimaginable. Like you can literally make more pie so that everybody has <laughs> pie or there's no pie, you know? <laughs> like, I love that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing all of this. I think um, I always like to ask at the end if you... Um, you know, for everyone listening, especially for those who have just recently started chanting or are thinking about it or just kind of curiously listening, um, what sort of one piece of advice you would give to someone who might be struggling with something similar to where you were at, where they're um, they're really like gaining, you know, their self-worth from things outside of them or they're really just burnt out or confused about what their purpose is, whatever it might be. What would you say to someone who might be kind of in that spot right now? I would encourage them to to chant. Chant Nam-myoho-renge-kyo. And, you know, there's a world that exists that there's possibilities that exist that you might not be able to imagine right now. Mm. But when you chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, you are saying the name of your most amazing self. Like, and you can't even really imagine it because you don't know it yet until you start to reveal it in your life. So just chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo and do it with your whole heart. Do it to awaken to your 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 greatest mission like your worth and and believe like have conviction in it and then study about buddhism because you do <laughs> need to understand like all the depths of what nam myoho renge kyo means and because that really strengthens the power behind it when you say nam myoho renge kyo but the first thing is just 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 say it like just chant it even if it's like the one minute a day, 30 seconds a day, like just one time a day, just do it. <laughs> Here's my key takeaway from today's episode. Chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo is a way to infinitely expand your courage, wisdom, and self-worth, and an amazing starting point for figuring out what action you need to take to take care of yourself, whether that means setting boundaries, understanding why you're not caring for yourself, or just improving your daily routine. That's all for today, and we'll see you next week.